Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 11, The Eusebii Strike Back, Confusion and Pushback in the Post-Nicene Empire, 325-337. As we hinted at the end of last time's episode, the Council of Nicaea did not settle matters quite as neatly as it has been imagined. It may seem like it has at the end of 325. The heretics have been exiled, the Homoousians vindicated, and Constantine returned to his imperial throne, satisfied that the arguing bishops have been quelled, and that he might, for the first time in his near two decades of rule, enjoy some peace and quiet. It was not to be. The years after Nicaea were a glorious dumpster fire of semantic confusion, political schemes, and everybody just basically ignoring the fact that they'd had a whole big four-month council where they were supposed to settle everything. It is now time to examine this dumpster fire in detail, strolling through the acrid smoke and fumes, pointing out the most impressive pieces of garbage flambe, and poking through the rubble to see some of the most confusing shapes and shadows in the clearest light. The first of many people who absolutely refused to be normal about anything was the Emperor Constantine himself. For having put down a firm foot against heretics and dissidents, in a few years Constantine reversed himself entirely and readmitted almost everyone he had exiled. Foremost among these was Arius himself. A very short while after the Council of Nicaea, perhaps as short as a few months and no longer than a couple of years, Arius wrote a letter to Constantine saying that, hey, he's really sorry about the whole heresy thing. He, he didn't mean it. And he's included this little statement of faith that he's drawn up. And maybe Constantine could take a look at it. And if he likes it, let him back into the empire, maybe? Arius's creed was extremely bland and said nothing at all about the relationship between the son and the father that had gotten him exiled. It was basically the creedal equivalent of a, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, apology. But it was enough for Constantine, who accepted it, and instructed a group of sympathetic bishops to please let Arius back into the church. Whether you think this bespeaks Constantine's general theological ignorance, his desire for unity above all else, or both, is a matter of personal preference. So Arius waltzed happily back into the empire, ready to return home to Alexandria and enjoy the comforts of the now familiar Egyptian weather in his old age, which is exactly what he would have done had Alexander not still been bishop. Alexander was not so ready to readmit an unrepentant heretic, so he defied Constantine's request. This is, of course, a very bold and risky thing to do. But Alexander also had the wisdom to die shortly after making this degree, before Constantine really had a chance to punish him for it. 
He was then succeeded by Athanasius, that plucky young priest who had been his secretary at Nicaea a few years before. Showing the kind of brash resolve that would make him so famous later in this story, Athanasius upheld the ban on Arius. So Arius hung around the empire in limbo. Re-admitted in a bunch of seas where he could no longer minister because of the Nicene canons, and still excommunicated from his home. After a few years of this, Arius got tired and did something very foolish. He wrote another letter to Constantine saying that, hey, he still can't get into Alexandria, and it would be really nice if that could change, and there are still a lot of Christians in his home in Libya that really miss him, and it sure would be a shame if they got bent out of shape over this. Constantine interpreted this as a veiled threat to Roman unity, basically thinking Arius was threatening that there would be some kind of a revolt. And we know how Constantine feels about revolts and threats to the unity of the empire. He sent back an angry letter to Arius telling him to mind his place. Constantine also took the unusual step of ordering Arius's books to be burned, probably while humming along to Taylor Swift's classic song, Look What You Made Me Do, in the meantime. We're not entirely sure where this idea of book burning came from. It's possible Constantine got this idea from the imperial practice of the Damnatio Memori. As those of you who have been listening to the supplementals know, the Damnatio Memori was the most serious punishment that the state could execute on a dead person. Their writings were burned, their name was expunged from all official documents, and the whole state pretended as though they had never existed. Constantine was furious at Arius, and while he couldn't complete the Damnatio Memori on somebody who was still alive, he can silence them. And that is what Constantine did. Or, at least that's what he did for about a year, because then, for no apparent reason, Constantine sends another letter to Arius, which is much more cheerful, and even invites him to present his theology to a big council of bishops that will be meeting in Jerusalem. It sure would be easier to explain his teachings if, you know, his books hadn't all been burned. But being emperor means never having to say you're sorry, and Constantine enjoyed that perk to its fullest. But Constantine did help Arius out a bit. That synod in Jerusalem readmitted Arius to their fellowship, and Constantine then ordered the current bishop of Constantinople to accept Arius for ministry there. Constantine is, of course, flouting the canons of Nicaea here, which prohibited priests from switching residence without the consent of their original bishop. Why Constantine was willing to overturn the decrees of the council he had just called for the sake of a man he exiled is a mystery. But then again, if everybody had just been normal about this whole thing, we wouldn't have much of a story to tell. Which is why The Road to Nicaea is brought to you, perhaps above all, by being weird about stuff. Shark Week. Nicholas Cage. Referring to yourself in the third person. Unprovoked eyebrow raises. What do all those things have in common? Nothing. It's weird to put them together. That's the point. When all the normal people are having boring, sensical, linear conversations, be different. When your family is having a fight at the dinner table, make them uncomfortable, but in a different kind of way.
when the world screams, why can't you just be normal? Just be weird. You may not be liked, but you will be remembered. Being weird about stuff. Generating history and culture since the Stone Age. But Arius's reunion was not to be. The Bishop of Constantinople was firmly in the Nicene camp and was less than willing to readmit Arius. But, not wanting to defy Constantine, he barricaded himself in his room to make sure Arius couldn't get to him. Can't defy the Emperor if Arius can't reach you. He then hemmed and hawed and questioned whether Arius had really recanted his heresies. To which Arius responded by signing on to the Nicene Creed. Lock, stock, and barrel. By this time, over a decade has passed since the events of Nicaea, and the arch-heretic, the first Constantinian casualty of conscience, has finally given in. I don't know anyone who thinks Arius's conversion was a matter of sincerely being persuaded by rational argument. Far more likely is that he knew he was an old man with little time left, and he yearned to be readmitted to the church he had spent his life serving. But alas, he didn't even have time for that. For Arius died en route to see the bishop. The few accounts we have of the cause of death are all from Arius's theological enemies, and they attribute his death to some kind of painful bowel issue. Later writers will glory in telling you all the scatological details of his death scene. I will spare you the lurid details of those accounts, but I trust your imagination can fill in the gaps. Suffice it to say that many of the pro-Nicene saw Arius's death as a divine vindication of their position. The heretic had not been able to slip back into the church insincerely, no matter who backed him. Arius had lived as a heretic, and by God's providence, he had died as a heretic. But it's hard not to see a fair bit of tragedy in Arius's story. He was committed to his theological position, and there is no evidence that he really changed his mind on it, but he was hardly the only one to be skeptical of Nicaea. He was simply in the unfortunate position of being the most prominent and least powerful member of his party. The Eusebii held important and powerful bishoprics with all the privileges those entailed and all the protection from consequences they entailed. Arius was profoundly charismatic and clearly a gifted intellectual, but he had very little institutional power, and so the consequences of the controversy fell disproportionately on his shoulders. He died broken, alone, and still separated from the church he had loved. The other members of the Eusebii and friends did substantially better in the years after Nicaea. Eusebius of Nicomedia, exiled from the empire for allowing anti-Nicene priests to minister under his authority, was let back into the empire around the same time as Arius and returned to his episcopal post. Eusebius also saw a considerable rise in his fortunes and influence as a bishop, ironically enough, probably as a result of Nicaea. 
You may remember that one of the Nicene canons dictated that bishops in major metropolitan cities like Rome and Alexandria had seniority over bishops in their surrounding area. Well, Nicomedia happens to be very close to the rapidly growing imperial capital in Constantinople, and Eusebius of Nicomedia just happens to be very good at currying favor with Constantine. In fact, he will be the one to baptize Constantine on his deathbed. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Before all that, Eusebius of Nicomedia and Eusebius of Caesarea work together to launch what looks an awful lot like a systematic campaign to remove their theological opponents from power. For within several years, several important pro-Nicene bishops are mysteriously removed from their posts for heresy. Marcellus of Ancyra was one of the early victims. You may remember that Marcellus was the bishop who wasn't afraid to sound very modalistic and had that complicated psychological scheme to explain that the Son and the Spirit were just faculties of the Father, like will or memory are to the human mind. You may also remember that Marcellus didn't have many allies. In fact, many of the other Homoousian bishops were disturbed by his theology too. So he made a natural target. The Homoousians didn't make too much of a fuss when a council was drawn up to condemn him for heresy. And the Eusebii and their friends picked off a key adversary, one who exemplified everything they thought dangerous about the creed of Nicaea. But the next victim was much more politically significant. Eustathius, bishop of the important metropolis of Antioch. You will sometimes see Eustathius's name changed to Eustace in some English books on Nicaea. In this case, we are sticking with the original one because, one, it is his actual name, and two, because the name Eustace just makes me think of that nasty kid of the same name in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, the one who gets turned into a dragon and then Aslan has to come and tear his scales off and it's some kind of gross metaphor for sin or something. So anyway, Eustathius had been one of the fiercest defenders of Homoousian theology even before the council. You may even remember that Eusebius of Caesarea had gotten condemned as a heretic by a council at Antioch, a council that Eustathius as the bishop would have presided over. Well, Eusebius of Caesarea is ready for payback. Eusebius participated in a new council in which he accused Eustathius of modalism, that favorite bugbear of the Eusebii, and the same charge that had just demolished Marcellus. The two bishops took to the floor and argued with each other for days in a discussion that seems to have generated more heat than light. One understandably befuddled attendee later noted that, quote, Eusebius and Eustathius both confessed the Son of God to exist as a hypostasis, but argued as if they had misunderstood each other? Eustathius accused Eusebius of altering the doctrines ratified by the Council of Nicaea, while the latter declared that he approved of all the Nicene doctrines and reproached Eustathius for cleaving to the heresy of Sibelius, end quote. So there you are, a confusing council consisting mostly of two powerful leaders yelling angrily at each other without really understanding what they were actually saying. Who says the ancient world was so different from our own? 
But confused yelling or no, the tide had definitely turned against Eustathius. He was declared a heretic by the council, stripped of his position as bishop of Antioch. Emperor Constantine even confirmed the deposition personally. A bishop more friendly to the Eusebii was then installed. Interestingly enough, a group of Christians refused to acknowledge this change of bishop and continued on as a schismatic sect for some time. Even after the new bishop had died some 23 years later, these dissenters refused to acknowledge the next bishop, a consensus candidate named Miletius of Antioch, who satisfied both the pro- and anti-Nicene factions. This has given rise to the so-called Miletian Schism, which is a stupid name because we already had a Miletian Schism with Bishop Miletius down in Africa, and no, they are not at all related to each other. It wasn't enough for the Eusebii to confuse us with their own same names. They had to introduce a second controversy about a dude named Miletius. Truly, the sins against church history podcasters are piled to the sky. Now, you may be surprised by this sudden turn of fate. After all, the Homoousian side had carried the day at Nicaea. Their language was now enshrined in a creed promulgated with the blessing of Emperor Constantine himself. Their greatest theological enemies had endured public humiliation and exile. Yet now they were being ousted from their positions of power. What gives? There are several possible answers here. Buyer's remorse is as true in politics and religion as it is in retail. When one political party or faction sweeps into power, its main opponent usually gets a nice bump in opinion polls within a few weeks. Similarly, once the Council of Nicaea was over and its opponents were exiled, it maybe became easier to remember Arius as a victim of conscience rather than a rabble-rouser. Perhaps people became a bit more worried about the materialistic connotations of substance language than they had been before. It's also possible that Constantine's opinions changed. After all, the influential bishop of Nicomedia was right there, whispering anti-Nicene sentiments in his ear, and Eusebius of Caesarea was singing his praises at every opportunity. Could the emperor have been swayed by their relentless politicking? There may be some truth to both these theories, but the biggest reason is much less profound. Bishop Eustathius was deposed because he had insulted the emperor's mother. You see, Constantine's mother Helena was a devout Christian. While Constantine was emperor, she decided that she wanted to make a trip to the Holy Land. One of the perks of being the emperor's mom is that you get your travel, room, and board expenses covered when you want to take a trip. So Helena took her trip to the Holy Land and was wined and dined all along her way by important local dignitaries. When she got to Antioch, Eustathius was one such dignitary, but he apparently made some rather large faux pas during the meal. We have absolutely no information as to what that faux pas was. Did he seat her at a less honorable spot than he should have? Serve her bad food? Criticize her in front of the guests? Did he make terrible jokes like, Whoa, Helena! With breath that bad, why'd your son have to fight for the Empire so long? Just have all the other emperors eat with you and they'll keel over right away. We simply don't know. 
What we do know is that it is a very bad idea indeed to criticize the mother of the man who has taken a very personal interest in your church. So Constantine was not particularly happy with Eustathius to begin with. Add to that a few choice charges made by a powerful and persuasive opponent like Eusebius of Caesarea, and most of the other bishops saw an opportunity to get rid of a man who had become something of an embarrassment. Constantine was inclined to let it go through. This is a really, really big deal. As you may remember, Antioch is one of the biggest cities in the empire, and it held primacy over most of the surrounding churches. Now it has gone from being a bastion of Homoousian theology to a bastion of the theology of the Eusebii and their friends, who already hold important posts close to Constantinople and Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the anti-Nicene forces hold the bulk of power in the Eastern Empire. In fact, there's just one city in the East that is still a bastion of Homoousian theology, and that is Alexandria, where the plucky young former deacon Athanasius has just succeeded Alexander as the new bishop of the city. Athanasius had an extremely eventful life, and we will be following him through most of it as the years go on after Nicaea. He was a natural successor to Bishop Alexander, not just because they shared the same theology, but because Bishop Alexander had been his adoptive father. You see, Athanasius had been orphaned at an early age, and Bishop Alexander took him in, making sure he had a good education and raising him in the church. Perhaps this occasioned some jealousy among other churchmen. We know that he was given the none-too-friendly nickname most closely translated as the Black Dwarf. From this we learn that Athanasius was probably short in stature, and also that he was likely of African ethnicity, which in a melting pot like Alexandria would not be taken for granted. Athanasius was distinctively African, and perhaps this was held against him by those who let their colorism inform their view of their clergy. But whatever the murmurings against him, we know he solidified his standing in the years after Nicaea and succeeded his adoptive father in God. But here, too, there was controversy and struggle. We don't know the exact circumstances of Athanasius's election, but we know that it was severely contested. Some delegates argued that Athanasius was lying about his age. By canon law, nobody was allowed to be a bishop before they turned 30, and some of his opponents alleged that Athanasius had fabricated his birthday and that he was actually still in his 20s. It's a shame they didn't have birth certificates back then, although modern politics has shown us that even that is no impediment to controversy. I'm not sure how one proves one's age in ancient times. His parents were dead, and it's unclear if there were any midwives around who had delivered him and could have proven his age. Maybe he just complained about all the weird things his body was doing, like how he sneezed wrong and his neck hurt for three days, and then eventually everybody said, oh, okay, yeah, this guy's in his 30s. In any case, Athanasius eventually prevailed. He was elected probably on the strength of his associations with Bishop Alexander, and also perhaps on the convenience of his name. I mean, Athanasius of Alexandria isn't quite as easy to remember as Alexander of Alexandria, but it's pretty close. However, 
His opponents were not about to take this defeat lying down. Athanasius would be hounded throughout his episcopal career with political machinations designed to remove him from his powerful seat. They started early and went on for the entirety of his life. And they went hard. Shortly after his election, Athanasius was accused of murdering a fellow bishop and of cutting off his hand to use in some kind of black magic ritual. Now, obviously, murder and fell magical rituals are a big no-no for anyone, but especially for bishops. So a council was called in Tyre to investigate this very serious matter and determine if Athanasius was killing people for fun. Athanasius, showing the exact level of sass and pluck that would serve him well throughout his episcopacy, prepared no grand defense for this council. Instead, he brought along one very special guest. That special guest was the person who he had been accused of murdering. Turns out that the man was alive and well and living not that far from Tyre, with both of his hands still quite firmly attached to his wrists. So Athanasius went up there and found him and asked if he could do him a favor. So Athanasius showed up to the council with very compelling evidence of his innocence. I'm not sure if he even said anything, or if he just took to the floor and pointed dramatically at the living, breathing dude sitting next to him until the assembled bishops took the hint. But either way, he was free and clear of the murder charge. Now, Athanasius will tell us that the Eusebii were behind this plot from the very beginning. And it's possible they were. They had played a role in deposing Eustathius, and perhaps Marcellus as well. It's understandable why Athanasius would see evidence of a conspiracy to remove pro-Nicene bishops across the empire. And Eusebius of Caesarea was presiding over this council to examine him to boot. But it's also worth remembering that Eusebius was a very powerful bishop who was presiding over a lot of things these days. It's not clear whether it was personal. Moreover, Athanasius had another group of ready-made enemies at home to plot against him. The Miletians, descendants of that Egyptian Miletius who had gone around ordaining schismatic priests and lobbing them into Alexandria like ecclesiastical hand grenades. They saw Athanasius as just the next stooge in a long line of two tolerant bishops who had abandoned the faith of the martyrs and cozied up to traitors instead. Moreover, Athanasius had been present at the Council of Nicaea, which the Miletians hated. All those canons that got passed prohibiting bishops from ordaining people not in their diocese, and reinforcing the Alexandrian Patriarch's authority over them, had direct negative implications for the Miletians, and they saw Athanasius as one of the main defenders of that council. All of which is to say that we don't know the Eusebii were the ones who hated Athanasius and masterminded a plot to kick him out of his episcopate because, well, there were a lot of people who hated Athanasius and wanted to kick him out of his episcopate. And it's really hard to nail down one group as the ringleader, even if the Eusebii may have had something to do with it, as the title of this podcast episode suggests, that doesn't mean that they were the ones in charge. In fact, Athanasius was so hated by his adversaries 
that they didn't even stop when their murder charges against him failed. At the Council of Tyre, Athanasius was charged with disgraceful treatment of the Meledians. They claimed that Athanasius had enticed thugs to beat up Meledian bishops and had several prominent leaders thrown into prison or driven out of their churches. Athanasius strenuously denied those charges, of course, and the historical evidence we have comes down to a case of dueling witnesses. Those on Athanasius's side maintain he was a uniquely gentle soul who could never be imagined to do such a thing. Those against him spoke as though Athanasius woke up every day twirling his handlebar mustache and cackling villainously while tying Melidian clergy up to yet-to-be-invented train rails. There are a few private letters between Melidians detailing Athanasius's treatment of their leadership. Since these letters were not intended for public consumption, there are some scholars who treat them as the best source of information on the matter. And if that is true, then Athanasius was a violent bishop indeed, whipping up mobs and sending his opponents into involuntary exiles with threats of violence should they return. But not everyone is so convinced that these documents are believable. After all, propaganda happens within groups, not just between them, and it is possible that some Melidians are making Athanasius a bogeyman to their credulous, creedal comrades. It's also worth remembering that these are the same people who baselessly accused Athanasius of murdering people for fun. The Council of Tyre certainly seemed predisposed to believe the accusers, but given the paucity of firm evidence, this charge was ultimately less important. For they had also arranged a more politically charged accusation, that Athanasius had threatened to cut off shipments of Egyptian grain to the rest of the empire. This was a really, really big deal. You may remember way back in episode 1 when I said that the central problem that dominated the Roman Empire was logistical, and primarily about food. How was the Roman Empire going to get the right amount of food to the right people at the right time so that nobody starved? For centuries, Alexandria had been the linchpin of the Roman answer. Alexandria is in modern-day Cairo, which, as you may know, sits on the banks of the Nile River. Now, the Nile is a very interesting river for many reasons, but the biggest one for the Romans was that it has extremely regular and predictable flooding cycles. Egyptian farmers knew exactly how to wait for the Nile to flood, then recede, leaving all sorts of minerals and nutrients in the soil. You then planted your crops and harvested them before the next cycle of flooding began. And because the soil was so rich, you could harvest a lot of crops. So many that Alexandria became the breadbasket of the empire. But you may be thinking, I mean, okay, but that's still kind of a weird thing to accuse Athanasius of. The man's a bishop, not a shipping magnate. He can't just tell the dock workers to stop shipping grain, right? Ah, but dear listener, he kind of can. For as we talked about a few episodes ago, Constantine had made bishops civil administrators, giving them large amounts of money and goods to distribute to the locals. That gave them influence, and they could, theoretically, use that influence to get, say, local farmers and dock workers to do their bidding. So the charge that Athanasius was threatening the empire's food supply was at least credible. 
Like all good he-said-he-said charges, there was no actual way to prove whether Athanasius had done this. He denied it. His enemies affirmed it. Constantine was not in the habit of brooking threats to imperial unity or sufficiency, so he decided to exile Athanasius just in case the charges were true. He was removed from Alexandria and ordered never to return. As you can see, absolutely nobody was going to be normal about this whole Nicaea thing. Not Constantine, who flip-flopped between brutal exile-happy autocracy and cuddly, ah, gee, why can't we all just be friends, milk-toast collegiality every 30 seconds? Not the Homoousian crowd, who put their feet in their mouths with such enthusiasm you'd think they were made of cake. Not the Eusebii and their friends, who spent their days leading the charge against Nicene theology while claiming to uphold it. And not the Miletians, who were busy inventing murder charges without making sure the purported victim was actually even dead. But the problem wasn't just that people weren't being normal. Language itself refused to just be normal about the events of Nicaea. We've been talking a lot about a few important Greek words that have been part of the Trinitarian discussion for over a century. There is ousia, which is usually translated as substance. Ousia is, of course, the root word from which homoousius is derived. Then there is hypostasis, to which I gave the very technical definition of independently existing thing. Ousia is the stuff of which things are made, and a hypostasis is an individual thing that can exist on its own. Two hypostases, like, say, two people, can share one common substance, one common ousia. But in defining my terms that way, I kind of cheated a bit. Because despite these words being in the theological vernacular for over a century, not everybody used those words in the exact same way. They will be by the end of the story, and the definitions they will use are the ones I have given you. During these years, however, some people use hypostasis and ousia as synonyms of each other. This causes a lot of unnecessary confusion, especially when the Nicene Creed says that the Father and the Son are homoousius. Now, if you think that substance is synonymous with independently existing thing, then it sounded like the Creed was saying that the Father and Son were actually only one independently existing thing. And that was, you guessed it, modalism. In fact, an early church council had condemned the use of the word homoousius for precisely this reason. Paul of Samosata, that notorious modalist of the 3rd century who had been exiled by Aurelian, Paul had used homoousius in precisely this modalistic sense and had been condemned for it. Of course, the bishops of 325 did not have the same meaning in mind, but it was hard to get this point across when the most notorious heretic of the last generation was using the same vocabulary as you. Nobody wanted to be a modalist, but this semantic confusion made it seem like you had to be a modalist if you wanted to affirm Nicaea. Now, you may be thinking, okay, but if those two words overlap, why don't they just find a different word? I mean, there are plenty of good words out there, so many good words. What about person? Don't the Greeks have a word for person? Why not just call the father and son two persons like we do nowadays? 
Well, dear listener, you are exactly right. There is a Greek word for person. It's prosopon. The problem was that prosopon could mean a human person, or it could mean a role that an actor plays on stage, or a mask someone wore to take on a different form. The idea that father and son were prosopon could be taken to mean that those were just mere roles that God played. And what is that? Modalism, all over again. So, language itself refused to just be normal and supply a nice, easy word for the matter of what exactly there is three of in God and what there is one of in God. There is another linguistic controversy in which language continues to confound even plucky, present-day church history podcasters. In Greek, there are two words that potentially describe the sun. Agenatos and agenatos. If you couldn't tell by my awkward, elongated in sound, the only difference between those two words was that the second one has two news in the middle of it instead of one. By the way, new, in you, is the Greek letter that makes the sound we think of as in in English. Now, what is the difference between those two words? Vibes, mostly. Agenatos, with one new, means something like having never not existed, with a connotation of immortal, intransient, and immutable. Agenatos, two news, means something like ungenerated or unbegotten. How is that different from the first word? Good question. For most people, it wasn't. They used them interchangeably. But other people saw a subtle difference between them and made it everyone's problem. We can see the distinction beginning, where else but in Origen, who thought the sun was definitely agenatos, one new, but generally didn't call the sun agenatos, two news. Because Origen thought the sun was eternally generated, so he was definitely intransient and eternal, but he was a son, so clearly he was begotten of the father. That's what being a son means. But other people will say differently. In one spectacularly stupefying argument, Athanasius will defend the son being agenatos, two news, in other words, unbegotten. He does this by saying that if the son is genatos, like his dumb opponents say, then that means the son isn't the image of the father. Because the father is agenatos, and if the son is just agenatos, then he isn't the image of the father unless he is agenatos too. Did you follow that? No? Well, good, because neither did anybody else in his day. I am going to try to spare you this particular argument as much as possible, because homophones are murder for podcasters. But just know that in the years following Nicaea, a whole bunch of the argument consisted of people sitting around trying to figure out exactly how many in sounds the other person had made. Despite all of this confusion, we start to see some of the first really great literature of the period emerging in the years after the Council. Two works of Athanasius are still read today, his Orations Against the Arians and his On the Incarnation. On the Incarnation is particularly highly regarded as Athanasius' masterpiece. 
C.S. Lewis, that famous atheist-turned-Christian apologist, used to say that in reading On the Incarnation, he knew he was reading the work of a genius. And it's true. But we shouldn't neglect the orations against the Arians either, for in it we begin to see the contours of Athanasius' polemical theology that will define these middle years of the controversy. So for the next couple of episodes, we're going to take a break from the historical narrative to delve more deeply into these two texts. After all, this journey has been going on for many months now. Nicaea is a long way to go. Perhaps your metaphorical legs are falling asleep in the car, or your proverbial children have been whining that they have to go to the bathroom for 20 miles now. So you pull over to the intriguing roadside attraction that is the writings of St. Athanasius. You stretch your legs, let the politicking and murder charges and arguments over how many in sounds you made all fade away. You pull up a good book and let your tired body stretch out and rest. For though your body may not be moving, your mind is still traveling, perhaps all the faster, along the conceptual road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.